paternal figures. I had two pretty excellent <laughs> grandfathers that I knew pretty well, and I have a wonderful father. And, um, you know, there's, there's things that dads do that kind of push their kids. They, 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 the words just kind of keep echoing, right? And a, wor- a word from a father can hurt a kid in a way that just keeps coming back. My dad believed in corporal punishment. I think, I think I might say he strongly believed in corporal punishment. He was raising two boys. My brother and I were the older of our four uh, siblings, and he believed in that. And I, every now and then somebody will say, Did, do you have any, like, scars from any of that? And I have no scars from physical stuff in my life. It's all words that people have spoken to me. But that means that words are powerful, and, you know, when words are used well, they have power to do incredible good. And when words are used poorly, they have the power to do incredible evil, right? Words are fought over words. So my dad, one of the things I remember about my dad is my dad is, uh, he's Dutch, and he is expressive on every topic. He is incredibly communicative. He talks constantly. He's more a talker than I am by far. And uh, he reminds me of my daughter, Maggie, or maybe Maggie reminds me of my dad. And he's real, he's just outgoing, but he does not like to talk about his feelings. He's Dutch, West Michigan. He grew up Christian Reformed, which is kind of an old country sort of church. Um, his great-grandfather was a was on the board and all the, this different stuff we could talk about. But long story short, my dad and I, he, he, we had these trips that we'd take, we, and they're always hunting trips. Every now and then they were a fishing trip. He didn't really like to fish, but he knew I did, so we'd end up fishing. Um, but he loves to hunt still today, loves to hunt. And we'd get in the car and we'd go someplace. And I, I literally, I'm pretty sure this is true, that if you had a thermometer in the car, the temperature would go down. And I mean, if we were spring turkey hunting, it still went down to really cold. Or if it was in the fall or winter when we deer hunted, it was very cold. But uh, it was like the, the, you'd feel the whole car change climate. And then my dad, who had been silent for about 20 minutes, and I realized now he was probably readying himself for this moment, he would say, Josh. And I'd say, yes. And I would look at the floor, and he would say, you know I love you, right? And I'd be like, Yeah. <laughs> And, and then, like, I would try with everything in me to eke those words out. And, and eventually, by later high school, I think I started to kind of reply, I love you too, Dad. And today, I actually say it easier than he does, you know? Like, and I, we, we, when, we got into co- when I got into college, I'd come home, and he'd be like, it'd be like James Arness and a gun, you know who James Arness is? Matt Dillon on Gunsmoke, you know, the longest-running TV show of all time. And, you know, there's always these scenes with him sitting out in a street like this, and he's, you waiting for the draw. Yeah, when I walked in our house, my dad would be like, okay, and he'd look like James Arness, and I'd realize the decision wasn't whether to draw a gun or not. It was whether to hug or not, because we weren't quite sure whether, you know, like we were doing this, and we hadn't figured out the one tap thing or something, you know, like we, and, and it's just funny, right? Fathering is kind of a strange thing, and it's actually really, really intimate. It's a close thing, C.S. Lewis, the great writer who uh, was so much about, um, well, he wrote a book on loves called The Four Loves, and he was tremendously expressive, and he wrote children's literature that expresses the heart of God in such unique ways. One of the things he treasured all throughout his life was adult friendships with men. And he was great friends, especially um, he's known for his his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings. And they used to get together every week and drink beer 
true story, and uh, sit in a pub and talk about God. An amazing thought. And every week they, they were called the Inklings, and then they would talk about great literature, and they would go back and forth. That actually started before Lewis became a Christian, but it was through those men that he, became, or be, that he, that he came to faith. And so I just, I kind of think of this kind of heritage of fathering that we're in the middle of. And I just, you know, it's, it's an amazing thought that God is the ultimate father. And he's much better at saying, I love you and being encouraging than earthly fathers are. And uh, yeah, God is, he's a wonderful father. So, <coughs> excuse me, if you were going to look in the scriptures for a good father, Probably all of the 11 original apostles died early on, okay? James is the first, after Judas, to go. But there's one who remains. Matthew may have lived to a natural death. We're not quite sure about Matthew. But everybody else is martyred. And it's very, very clear in church history um, that they're, they're killed in obscene, broken ways. But John, the apostle, lives to the late 90s um, AD, and he writes from this very aged perspective, and he becomes a bishop or a pastor in the church at Ephesus, the same church that Paul would have one day, would originally kind of plant and nurture it in its early stages. John would end his life ministering to, and then he would be exiled from that place to the island of Patmos, from which he writes the book of Revelation, or from Patmos he writes the book of Revelation. Before that, he re- writes First John, and I want to just take a moment, and we're going to read chapter 2 of 1 John, and you're going to, I think, have the opportunity, I hope, to experience what is a good father representing his good father. You know, John was the, the, the um, disciple that it, the Bible consistently refers to him, and he refers to himself when he writes, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was close with Jesus, and it's on John. There's this leaning that goes on in the last night, when the, at, the, at the upper room when the disciples are all gathered at the Passover feast before Jesus is betrayed and there's this leaning on each other that happens that's kind of intimate and it's a reminder of how close this man feels about God and that's true even in his 90s. Maybe it's more true than even when Christ was walking on the earth and so he writes from that perspective and if you could hear these words, Tim and I were talking before this, this morning that if we, we would almost wish that we just didn't have to preach about it because they're so encouraging in their heart. If you can read these words for what they actually mean, which is a little bit troublesome because they're 2,000 years old, you will hear the heart of a great dad wishing for his children or great-grandchildren even to be blessed, and you will hear God through him trying to bless a church. And he continuously refers to these people as his little children, and they apparently weren't offended by that. I'm not in the habit of calling a church my little children. I think that takes a whole long time and a lot of credibility to get to the place where you could write that way to a church. But he writes to this church and he says, my little children, and then he encourages their hearts. So just hear these words. It's a little bit lengthy from that standpoint, but hear the words of a father. It says, my little children, there's the first line, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. He's trying to protect his kids from the fake kids, right? There are fake children, and they're imitating, and they're not the real thing. And he's saying, there are people among you who are lying, and interspersed within this encouragement will be Reminders that there are liars among these people. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. 
Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. John is within a few few years of himself being exiled by the Roman government, and he is within a few years in the past of all of his friends who were the disciples of Jesus being killed. And so when he says the true light is already shining and the darkness is passing, that would have taken faith to say. He's actually saying these people, you're missing some very important people in your faith, and yet the light is coming. Don't hold on to it. Wait for it. It's It's still on its way. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This is a pep talk. If you, this is 2,000 years old. I know it doesn't sound quite like Woody Hayes or whoever else you might have in your mind as far as a good coach, but he's actually giving them a pep talk. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's a way of saying continue to overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. He's trying to write very encouraging words. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. What good father doesn't tell his children that there's a way to get off track and get lost in this world? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have already come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. These are people who look like Christians, but they're teaching false truths. They went out from us, but they were not of us, these Antichrists. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. He writes that line, no one who denies the Son is the Father, because there were these people who went around teaching false teachings, and that is that the physicality of Jesus, the fact that he was human, is a real problem um, because they believed in spiritual and not physical. And so they were real mad about Jesus being actually human. And so he says, you can't actually believe in the God of the Jews and the God of the Bible, and you can't believe the God of this world without believing in the Son of God. And don't somehow mix that up and mess it up. You'll get lost. And so he's trying to teach them that. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is not a lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. 
in these last words, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This may not sound like what it is to you, but it's a gigantic kind of set of lines that says, you can do it. I'm about to die. You can make it. You can go on. You can continue. And it's just meant to be incredibly encouraging. You are little children. Your father knows that. He's watching. You have heard lies. He knows that. He's caring for you. He'd love to teach you the truth. You are people who have heard the truth, and you don't need to be afraid that somehow you're going to lose your way. Just continue with the Spirit of God and continue with what I've taught you. And it's this kind of encouraging set of words. So there's a whole lot we could talk about in this passage, but we're going to have to kind of point by point it, right? We're going to have to pull out a few points. And in order to do that, we're going to focus on four things. First, who we are, which is going to go a little bit to Tim's sermon last week. Second, what if we fail? It's an important question, right? There's this band when I was in high school, they said, what if, you stum- what if we stumble? What if we fall? And I, I, that, that, that little song that they sang actually rose to the top of the charts because I think every kid my age wanted to hear that, especially if, as far as faith. Um, What if we fail God? And then looking like our Father, and then fourth, we're going to end with the source of our confidence. And if there's some way way this sermon is going to kind of uh, get to your heart, what I would hope is that it would teach you or explain to you how confidence works according to the Scriptures. And it's a really important question. I was talking with somebody yesterday, a friend of mine, and they were talking about how they lack confidence that God is at work in their life. And this passage is a really good way to know how to know that you have confidence in Christ. So the first one, who we are. Listen to this. Little children, this is from chapter 4. It's not from chapter 2. You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. One of the things John is so good at doing is he's good at telling us that we are not contextless. We are not somehow just here by accident. We're in the middle of a gigantic battle, and that battle has been raging from the very beginnings of the world's history. It tells us that there was this serpent that crawled into the garden, and he spoke to the first man and woman. Why would a serpent speak to Adam and Eve? It's just a strange story, but it's the beginning of our battle with this thing that's real, this darkness that is in the middle of our world. And John wants these people to know, you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That means that when we think of who we are, we are the children of God, and it's almost as if we're misplaced. If the world works around us, sometimes we have this thing like the world isn't what it used to be. It's getting more and more broken, and that may or may not be true. But when you think about the world becoming more and more broken, don't miss the point that God has been calling children of light to walk in the darkness since the very beginning of Jesus' earthly mission. He himself walked in the middle of darkness. On one hand, he walked in the midst of immoral people like the woman at the well. Remember her? Tremendously immoral woman. She's probably somebody who tempted a lot of men. And Jesus, none of that. He had no problem. He just loved her for who she was, a a sister, somebody who he could lead to know the Father. And he connected with her in a way that resulted in her knowing God and becoming an evangelist for her community. What a powerful thought. So that Jesus walking in the middle of darkness transforms a very dark person into a person of light who in turn transforms this community into a community of light. 
Faith is born in Sychar in Samaria, a place where nobody would have thought faith could grow. It's born because Jesus walks into the darkness and becomes a light. Well, the very story just preceding that is John chapter 3, and Jesus is connecting with this man in Jerusalem. His name is Nicodemus, and he comes to Jesus literally in the dark. Literally, in the dark. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the 71 Jewish ruling council, the 71-person Jewish ruling council. And that means he's a man who's one of the 71 most foremost leaders in his culture. And he's afraid that anybody's going to notice him. And Jesus, he, he comes to Jesus in the dark at night, and he has this conversation with Jesus. And Jesus reaches into that darkness. And by the end of Jesus' life on earth, Nicodemus is actually one of the people who takes him off of the cross and buries him in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Somehow his heart got transformed. So we have a religious person. You know, if, if, if an immoral woman from Samaria where morality is a real problem, where brokenness was normal, could be conquered, if that shell could be cracked by the heart of Jesus, well, then I would think there's a maybe even a harder shell in the form of a religious person who'd been to church, quote-unquote, all of his life. And Jesus kind of reaches into him and says, it's all a sham, man. You haven't been born again. It's not enough to be born of a woman. You have to be born of the Spirit. There has to be something that happens in here. We get maybe the New Testament's most famous verse from that, John 3.16, that interchange back and forth. Jesus says, listen, it is by the Son of God that you must become a son of the Father. It is through my death and resurrection that this will work. And so when John writes decades and decades later, he's saying, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And he has proven it by walking around and transforming lives. And now he's proving it by deciding to work through you. You are part of an eternal battle. And understand that that's not going to feel good every day, and you're going to be in a context of conflict. And if you think you're in a context of peace only, you've probably missed some part of what God has called you to because he's called you to live in the middle of a bit of difficulty. Nobody did it better than Jesus. Nobody did it more than Jesus. Nobody traveled a greater distance from ultimate good to what is a very broken spot. It also tells us that there's this thing that's going on, that, that he who is in the world, what, what does that mean? Who's in charge of this planet? We like to say it's God. But Jesus himself and John after him and Paul in the middle actually periodically mentioned to us that, listen, Satan has a whole lot of leadership. He's the prince of the power of the air. He has this ability to reach in and do difficult and broken work in our world. And if we're not somehow representing Jesus in the middle of that, we're probably not echoing the heart of the Father. So little children, you are from God, and, if you, and you have already overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And the, the battle has been won in one sense, right? The great theologian Karl Barth, traveling across the United States, actually was asked by this fundamentalist Christian woman. She says, Dr. Barth, how did you come to know Christ? How did, when were you saved? And he said, well, I was saved 2,000 years ago. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, I was saved. Well, that's a truth. And Carl Burt was saved when he came to know Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior. And John, in another place, is going to say, you're saved when the salvation comes, which will be at the end of time, when Jesus actually lands on the Mount of Olives and all things are made right. We're in the middle of this context where, from eternity past to eternity future, we're in a very important and interesting moment of time. And we have to see ourselves as small little children, and yet we're small little cogs in a very important and long-lasting battle. 
And Jesus writes, listen, you echo the heart of God and you have already won because you're part of this life that will go on beyond this world. And yet, interestingly, you're not in a context where that easily makes sense. It's a broken place. Excuse me. Anybody else having allergies in this spring? I'm having a few myself, obviously. So little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. A great line. So that's who we are. We're the children of God, representing God in a world that's broken, in the middle of conflict. That's what he wants to tell us. And he's put us on his team. It's a little bit like a pickup basketball team where a bunch of brothers are playing and the father is the coach. That's kind of the tone of this passage. The second thought is, what if we fail? Dallas Willard, at the end of his life, just before he passed away, he was a philosopher uh, at the University of Southern California and a phenomenal Christian man. He, He said, the thing that the church is missing the most is confession. You know, the reason I know he's right about that is because we're so worried about failure in the church. You know, this is a room filled with spectacular failures. I don't know if you know that. But some of you have been honest enough to tell your pastors your story, and so I know you're a failure. I know you are. And maybe you've heard me say enough times that I'm a failure that we can just kind of admit it. It's almost as though we should walk into this room and we should all kind of sound like somebody who's from Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't need to say, Josh, I'm an alcoholic, because that's not my particular failure, but I have failed. And I have failed in sin. And I have failed in spectacular form. And when John writes this, he says, listen, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you remember, the first verse of chapter 2 says, I'm writing to you that you might not sin. Why is he writing that? Well, yeah, but why does he write, I'm writing to you so that you don't sin? When I was a kid, I read that, and I remember thinking kind of a moralistic set of thoughts like, oh, goodness gracious, I've sinned already today. I'm lost. I'm, st- I'm stuck. I'm ri- John is writing so I don't sin, and I've already sinned. And I think the point there is not so much that we're not going to sin. He's hoping that we stop sinning, that this sin power in our life kind of slowly grinds to a halt as the power of the Spirit takes over and the glory of God takes over in our lives. But if anyone does sin, he says, listen, let me tell you, the fear that you have in your hearts has been conquered already. First John 4, 18 and 19 says that... that Perfect love casts out fear. And one of the ways John does that is to say, listen, if you do fail, understand there's something that can be done about that because Jesus actually sits in heaven at the right hand of the Father and he's earned the right to be a high priest for us. And he's sitting there whispering in the ear of God, I love that boy. And even though he sinned, he is beloved by the Father and he is beloved by the Son and he is inhabited by the Spirit of God. So what if we fail? We have an advocate. And he's a perfect advocate. This should take away our fear, and it doesn't. And that's an interesting problem for us, right? Anybody want to start confessing their sin this morning? We have a microphone. Josh, we have a microphone free. We can set it up. You can come up here, one after the other after the other. When I was a freshman in college at Moody, there was a quote-unquote revival that hit the college campuses of America. started at Wheaton College in the suburbs of Chicago, and people started to gather, and they just connected, and they started to confess sin. I remember sitting in the back row of this 
revival. I didn't want to get anywhere in the middle or towards the front. I was afraid I would be attracted to that microphone myself. I didn't want the spirit to get a hold of me. I liked that he was getting a hold of all those other people. This is true. And the, one of my friends confessed some things that maybe they, they were they were big sins, you know? And I remember thinking, holy smokes, that guy? Really? And then, you know, the crowd, everybody was kind of getting into it. And I sat on the outside watching. And I look back on that and think, what was wrong with me that my heart never moved and joined in? And I've come to realize that, that there's this social pressure. We're all afraid. And it might not be that we're just afraid of the Father and what he would say about us if he was just and didn't have an advocate. If we didn't have this Jesus high priest next to him, we could be afraid of what that God would say. But, but we do. We have, an, we have a priest. And so we don't need to be afraid of that. And yet, why do we not confess our sins? Well, I'm afraid what Byron thinks of me. And I'm afraid of what Yushin thinks of me. And I'm afraid of what Rick thinks of me. That's what holds me back. And I know you don't want to confess, and that's fine. But, you know, confession is a really important thing. First John 189 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you tell a brother or a sister what's going on in your life, it unempowers the enemy and it makes it possible for God's power to work. And it makes it very possible for us to conquer sin in this lifetime. What's interesting is that's actually part of John's thought, that if you live in a community of people who actually get honest with each other, and I get that might not be a 100 people, it might be two or three, but if you live in an honest community with each other and you start to talk about what your struggles are, that unempowers Satan's deceptions in our lives. And so John writes as a good father, and he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And that makes confession not only something that should happen, but something that empowers if it does happen. And frankly, when somebody shares what's broken in their life, there's somebody else in the room who's struggling with the same thing. Solomon wrote it best. He said, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Nobody in this room has invented a new way to sin. It has not happened. The same sins we're doing now, we've been doing for thousands of years on this planet. It just keeps going on and on and on. And John says, listen, conquer that thing. Get rid of it. I'm writing so that you don't have to sin. And understand that part of not needing to sin is realizing that you have forgiveness already because it unempowers sin. And then when you agree with a few brothers or sisters about that and walk in the power of what Jesus has for you and realize there's a priest up there who's standing before the Father and saying, yes, Lord, these people too, they're forgiven. They were paid for. Their sins are done. Let's cleanse them. Let's get rid of this unrighteousness. Let's pull this stuff out of them. Sometimes I think it's a little bit like God unraveling a thread from a, from a sweater. We're just kind of woven in. There's little threads of brokenness in our hearts, right? And he keeps pulling. And I've noticed he's, he's pulling on me. He's changing my heart. He's yanking little threads and I'm kind of coming undone. There's this stuff that's going on in my soul, and it's actually resulting in me being more holy, but it's a little bit painful. And every now and then, the people around me are going, man, I thought he was better than that. And I want to say, yeah, I thought so too. (laughs) You know who was never surprised by our sin is Jesus. In Romans chapter 8, it says that God is the heart-searching God. And he knows the mind of the Spirit, but he knows the heart of every human being as well. And he holds those two things in his hand. He says, I know what the Spirit wants to do in the life of that person, and I know where their heart actually is. And then he says, I want them to be blessed and to be made holy. It's not because he's so moral and nasty up there. He can't stand sin, believe me. But part of why he can't stand sin is because he can't stand what it does to the human race. Every sin has consequences. All of those consequences hurt the people who commit the sin, and often they hurt a bunch of other people as well. And he's saying, God, 
blesses and loves these people. He wants them to be his children. And when sin devastates a family or when sin devastates a city or when sin devastates a country or a world, it didn't have to happen. Because if anyone does sin, we have an advocate in heaven. And he sits there and he's the original prayer. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus because we're praying through someone who gives us a right to be in heaven ourselves, right? You know, one part of your life is existing already in heaven. When you pray, you're connecting through Jesus who is faithful to mention those prayers. I don't think he does it verbatim. I think it just kind of flows seamlessly from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven, back and forth, this communication process. But we are children and Jesus and John are together saying, you can do it. You can conquer sin. And you got to do it by confession, and you got to do it understanding forgiveness, and you got to do it knowing that there's grace even ahead of time. It's probably, and we could go on and talk about this, this should probably talk about the way we handle each other's sin, right? Sin isn't light. It's not weak. It's not something that's unimportant. It's a big deal. And yet, it's not unconquerable either. Sometimes I think half the church thinks sin is so devastating that we can't move past it. The other half thinks that sin's so not a big deal that we don't actually have to notice it. And yet what John writes is it's an enormous deal that God can conquer because God is enormously powerful and Jesus has died an amazingly important death. And then there's that moment called the resurrection where his lungs filled with air and his heart started to beat again. This is why we don't have to fear sin. And among the things that love conquers is the fear of our own brokenness. And we don't want to admit it to each other, and we don't want to admit it to God, maybe. Maybe most of all, we don't want to admit it to us that what we are is broken. And yet he writes and says, you are my children, and I love you, and even when you fail, I still love you. That should empower us to walk as a community of confession. Then there's this passage about looking like our Father. If we live like we should live, then love would be possible. Anybody remember the show MASH? Captain Pierce? He was hilarious. I watch MASH. It's on Netflix. You can watch it episode after episode, and it just makes me laugh at the end of the day. And I was watching an episode where Captain Pierce, the surgeon who, if you remember, he's a pacifist who's always getting in fistfights. It doesn't really add up. But he gets furious one day because the army has once again extended his stay in Korea. He's in the Korean War. And... uh, he, he decides to go to the peace talks. He commandeers a jeep, and he drives across, I don't know, Korea, and he ends up at this tent, and he walks into half Korean people on one side and half Americans on the other, and they're in the middle of these peace talks, negotiating peace talks, and he tries to get them all to hold hands and to come to an agreement so the war would end so he could go back to, I forget where he was from, I think New York City. Kind of a strange thought, isn't it? And it doesn't work. The Koreans and the Americans won't hold hands, and the war goes on, and he says, all right, then. And he walks back, and he does this. He's a a doctor. He's an army doctor, so he goes back and does surgery. This passage says that we're supposed to love each other. And when I read, when I watched that recently, that, that old MASH episode, I thought, it's as though Captain Pierce just wanted us to all know that love was possible. And yet, I didn't think... If you really watch that show, he's not a very good example of love. He's not always loving, and he's certainly not always moral, and it's not always good what he does. And yet what this Bible tells us is that love is possible. It is powerful. And yet maybe I think it's the hardest thing on earth to do. I'm convinced that God has a harder time getting rid of bitterness and hurt in the human heart than he does in getting rid of cancer in the human body. 
I really believe that. When I look at the people of God, I think we struggle with a huge amount of unconfessed sin because we don't think God can forgive it and we don't truly trust him. And on the other hand, then we struggle with a huge amount of forgiveness. And when we look at each other and we go, that is a child of God, that means we actually have to love. And we try to get out of this with words that are kind of interesting. We say, well, we don't have to love, or that we don't have to like that person. We just have to love them. That is hogwash, just for the record. I've gone back to the original language, and I don't want to even tell you what I find. All it means is, no, you're brothers. You have to care. You have to do Thanksgiving dinner together, which is not fun even with my earthly brother sometimes, let alone my churchy brothers. And yet God has called us to this thing called the church, and he says, by our love, the world will know that we're actually Christians, and yet we can... We break this thing constantly. We talk about each other. We wonder what's wrong with each other. We have all these different things. Listen to what John writes. He says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true. He's just gotten done kind of saying, well, it's also old because Leviticus 19 already said this, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. What's really troublesome is that when we love somebody, we kind of put our heart out there, right? And if they don't walk in the light, their sin can let us down. And then we wonder, because love is supposed to be something that goes both ways, but often it requires somebody that steps in and says, I'll forgive first, I'll love first, I'll step across the line first. I'll listen to the Spirit of God for me, and I'll respond to the community, not based on what the community does or is, is, is saying about me, but I'll instead love first because Jesus called me to be loved first by himself. It starts with Jesus loving me. That means I love that other person, and even if they seem unlovable, I am called to love, like, care, bless them. doesn't always mean agree. That's what love doesn't mean for what it's worth. And so he writes this line and he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But the opposite is also true. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. John is saying you can do it. And what he's saying is you can do church. And quite frankly, what I think he means by this passage is a form of church that I've never seen. People actually loving each other without reservation, forgiving each other, holding on not to the grudges but to the connection and saying, yes, Lord God, we will choose you by choosing each other. John's really clear. You can't love God. You cannot say you love God. You can't say you're in Christ. In 1 John 1, it says you can't say you have community with Christ unless you have community with each other. That is scary. That means our ultimate fate with God is somehow tied to the ultimate fate that we share with each other. And those two things are not something we can somehow divorce. We wish we could. Shelby said that she wishes her 401k was more, was more robust, and so do I. I benefit from her 401k, I think, maybe, hopefully. Uh, you know. But I don't know what your retirement plan looks like, and you don't know my social security number, and we live individual lives, and you might not even know where I live, and you don't, there, there's so many different things about us that we kind of live in a world where we're isolated individuals here and there and everywhere. We're not, we're not connected to each other, especially maybe like what the world John was growing up in looked like, but we are called to be connected in this way. We are called that what is going on in each other's eternal lives affects every other person in the body, and we can't afford to somehow act like it doesn't. You can do it means you can look like God. 
And that means he loves people who seemingly are unlovable. And that means that when we can't find love within ourselves for a human being, and I have been there, I think I've been there in the last seven days, where it's, a, it's not you, just for the, what it's worth. But there, there are people on this planet that I find it hard to love, and I have to get up every morning and find the love that Jesus would offer for me, for them. He pours it into me, and then, then it runs out the other end. I hear some new truth about that person. I go, oh, goodness, I knew it. They're, they're sinners. I've always known it. And then the Spirit of God says, yeah, but look inside. I've seen inside you, right? We go back and forth with this thing. You can do it means that you are a child of God, and you don't get a choice about that. Once you're his child, you are. You don't get to walk away. And that means that you have this ability to be forgiven. And that means that you have the ability to walk in connection with the, with the body of Christ. But we usually like being children of God, but we don't want to actually know that we need forgiveness. We want to act like we don't need forgiveness. And so we miss step two. And then we definitely miss step three where we can't, unless you walk in forgiveness, you won't love people for long. It just won't happen. You know, for most of us, it's not the people who are difficult to love. For a long time, the church has found it easy to send money across the world it's next door that's kind of difficult, right? And frankly, I, it's easy to love my kids who exist in different parts of the home, but then it comes to marriage. That's probably the toughest relationship for most of us. I have a perfect wife, so it's not hard for me. But for most of us, it's difficult, right? Honestly, the closer we get to each other, the more we find the sinful brokenness inside of ourselves. And, and we look at each other and we know after years that it's kind of, we're messed up. And so, John writes, you can do it, and he says, you can love. You can walk a life of love. You can walk a life that is in the, child, in the, in the family of God. You can walk a life that is, with, is filled with this connection with God, and you can be forgiven, and you can look like the God who's birthing you. The great writer A.W. Tozer wrote it this way, and it, he, he kind of just has a way of putting this out there, that we connect with the Spirit, and then it transforms all of us. It says, has it ever occurred to you that one hundred pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Sometimes when we talk about unity, what we say is, let's all get together and love each other. That's what Captain Pierce was trying. And yet John says, don't try it. It won't work. You just try to get closer to that other person. You'll just find yourself powerless to do it. Again, you get closer to Christ, you'll find yourself empowered to love them in ways you can't imagine that you can do. It's not in you to do. Quite frankly, it takes supernatural power to love human beings because we are messed up people. And if you're wondering today how you can get across some barrier in your life, maybe it's a close person or maybe it's somebody who's hurt you in your past and you need to let go of some stuff, whatever it is, when you come to this thought, you realize it's by tuning your life to the ultimate tuning fork. It's by listening to the Spirit of God and then we learn to love each other because we've learned to love Jesus. We have to hurry, so we're going to step forward to the final point, and that's this that we can have confidence, and it's through this process. When you know that you're forgiven, when you know you're a child of God, and when you know you love the body, you can have confidence. But there's one kind of, kind of thread that kind of weaves its way through this whole passage. It says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. 
The inheritance of every child of God is to walk closely with God. And the insecurity of most of us has to do with the fact that we're not really walking all that closely. And we don't realize that the normal Christian life is an intensely intimate, connected life with the Spirit of God. That's the normal life, and most of us don't walk it. That sounds absolutely crazy and austere, but it's true. There is more. There is more sincerity and closeness possible. And John writes and says, listen, there's more of God. He has offered more of himself to you. You can walk closer into the degree that you abide in him. That's John's word. If you remember in John 14, 15, 16, 17, he uses that word again and again. When you abide in the spirit of God, when you abide in Jesus, there is this ability to have confidence. And the closer God gets, the more close you will feel to him instead of being pushed away. The ultimate fear is that we will not know God. And when we see him, we won't like him. Frankly, I think that's what leads to hell, is people looking at God and saying, I don't like what I see because that means I have to submit my life. The opposite is that we're submitting our life already and we're turning towards him. Now little children, abide in him and you may have confidence. I want to end with just four thoughts about um, that we're just going to read. That are, that are things that take away confidence. If you're, if you're somebody who this morning is, you're sitting there and you're going, I'm the little engine that couldn't, you know? Remember that book? My grandmother used to read that book to me, The Little Engine That Could. If you're, if you're sitting here saying, I'm the little Christian that can't. I just don't get over my stuff. Look at one of these areas, and I'm going to tell you what, which one's tough for me. Well, sin's tough. I'll just admit it. Sin is difficult, and that means to miss the mark. And whenever we do that, we have, this, we have this kind of quenching of the spirit thing that happens, and we can't feel God. Sin just takes away your connection with God. It doesn't take God away from you. Interestingly, we tend to think because we can't feel him, feel connected, sense what that con- close connection should be, that we've lost God. But that's not the truth. He doesn't get lost that easily. We've lost ourselves, not him. And we get lost in sin. Unbelief means you wake up and somehow you just think, I'm not a child of God this morning. I don't feel very loved. I don't feel very connected. I've forgotten what God said about me. And that's that I'm a loved child who's forgiven. And we wake up, most of us, in an unbelieving state. I don't mean you've lost your salvation. I just mean you wake up and your heart is not in a posture of belief. And when you don't have that posture of belief, things go broken. The third area is selfishness. When you mistreat another brother or sister or some other human being and act like they're not an image-bearing member of God's planet Earth, then somehow you have broken the heart of the Father and the Spirit of God is kind of grieved by that. And the fourth one is, this one's really tough for me because I tend to get ramped up and excited about something, but then remembering what God has said, I have to journal and write everything down because I forget everything. I just do. And I have to look back over my journals, and it takes, I have years of journals now, and I read them, and I'm always reminded that the stuff that God is trying to show me now, he's tried to show me before. And my unfaithful heart just kind of spirals downward away from him, and I have to awaken again and again to be towards him. God, the reason why those four words, and they're, they're kind of negative words, I get that, and we're ending a sermon on a negative point, but the opposite is that he wants closeness. And to the degree we have closeness, we have confidence. That is what God wants for your heart. And he's saying, you can do it. You can have it. You can walk with me. God isn't like my dad where he finds it so difficult to say those words. I love you. He just says them. And he says it with forgiveness, and he says it with a community, and he says it with this desire to be close to us and connect with us. That is what God's heart is towards human beings. It's not just people in church. It's everybody in the streets that are around us. Every, every home that is filled with some suburbanite who's just kind of going, well, today's my day off. I don't have to go into work. 
God loves them. If they're still in bed, he loves them. If they're watching TV, he loves them. If they're selling drugs in Pottstown, he loves them. It doesn't matter. He loves those human beings. And this is his heart towards us, and he's wondering why we're not closer. And to the degree that we connect up, we can connect with each other. And without that up, the church is impossible. There's no intimacy with human beings without intimacy with God. It does not last. It goes away quickly. And yet God's great heart is for us to know him. Join me in prayer. Father, we come before you and we bless your name. We honor you. We give you praise. Lord, I pray that you would speak. The book book of Hebrews says that Jesus speaks a better word. And when you speak a better word, Lord God, we would ask that you would just speak a word that would remind us of what's possible in our hearts. God, you wish for more with us than we've possibly imagined so far. You've wished for us to connect with you in ways that are, we've just driven ourselves in such dark patterns that we can't easily see you. And so God, this morning we pray that the message of 1 John would come cleanly through. And I believe this sort of thought is actually the message of the whole book. It's the closeness. And that's why John keeps saying, little children, I love you. He loves them those people he was writing to because he heard the heart of a father who loves this race of people and loves the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us, Parker Ford Church, a part of that. Thank you for your blood that has made forgiveness possible. Thank you for the fact that we have to walk kind of a narrow path to get there, and that's tough, and it's hard on us. And yet you've made it very possible through your spirit and through your scriptures, and we thank you for that. God, we just bless your name for what you're doing. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.